Well, welcome back to 2021. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I'm going to be trying to answer your questions about the Bible, Christian life, Christian worldview issues, that sort of thing. Um, and I just want to start by saying God is good today. God is good today. Right now, he's good. His promises absolutely remain. His glorious kingdom is on its way. And we, those who are in Christ, we belong to him. Our permanent, eternal, un corruptible, unfading kingdom is preserved with God in Christ. And that everything we see on earth and our involvement in the things on earth, it's just should be seen through the lens of how can this be useful in my service to Christ? And that's my encouragement to you to, rem to remember who you belong to. Remember who you belong to today, whose kingdom you're part of. Um, if, if, if anything has happened in the past couple of years with people, it's the polarization uh, and the, 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 the trenching, the entrenching, entrenchment of people. And, um, well, this could be good in a sense. I mean, I think it's generally bad, but it could be good in a sense that if a Christian is entrenched in their Christian worldview, entrenched in their commitment to Christ, entrenched in the fact that they'll filter every single thing through the lens of their obedience to and their, um, their love for Christ and their commitment to his eternal kingdom. Remember that the first disciples, one of the things that they were confused about, and I'm going to go to your guys' questions. We're already getting a ton in the, in the chat there. I'm just talking for a minute first. Uh, remember the first disciples, one of the issues they had was they had overly associated the kingdom of Christ with events of the day, political events of the day. And I don't want to make that mistake as a Christian. And so um, <clears throat> anyway, there's a couple encouraging things. I do want to start with this question and that is um, a tip on when should you, when should you reference secondary Bible translations? When should you, as you're reading and you're doing your say daily reading, you're studying the word, when is like a trigger moment where you go, you know what? I should look that up in another translation because I am dealing with the translation. I'm not reading the original language here. And so I do rely on translators. And sometimes I read stuff and I wonder, is now a good time to reference a second translation? Chances are you're not going to read everything in multiple translations, but at least you can get some trigger points. Sometimes where you go, okay, now's a good time. Right now is a good moment for me to look up a second translation. And I think I'll give you two, two tips on when you should look these up. These, after I say them, they'll seem like common sense to you, but I want them to become common sense. So as you're reading the Bible, one of the times you look up another translation is simply when you read a passage, you read it once, you read it twice, and you still don't understand, right? You, 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 it's not like you're struggling with the in-depth interpretation of the passage. It's more that you like legitimately don't understand what you're reading. That is when you want to look up a second translation. And if you still don't understand after reading a second translation, I want to recommend you go towards even a looser translation, like a, um, something more like the New Living Translation, which is which is a very much, in, it kind of inhabits the middle place between paraphrase and translation. And so you're reading it as an aid, as a help, but that's a great time to do it. When you read and you go, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, check another translation, a different wording may really help you. And the second one, and this is actually pretty important, especially for teachers, when you are hanging your interpretation on the nuance of the way a passage is read, that's a really good time to read an additional translation, right? So maybe you don't know Greek and Hebrew, you're not looking it up in, in that, but you know that your interpretation of this passage hangs on it being worded just this way. That's when you want to read another translation and see if in other translations, it preserves that unique wording, that particular wording of that passage. If it does, then you can feel more confident in your 
interpretation. If it doesn't, it might lead you to say, wait a minute, maybe I'm making too much out of the way this is worded here in this particular translation. This would save a lot of pastors, I think, actually, to be honest. Because you'll, you're teaching, and as you're teaching, you're drawing out points from the text, and then you, you do like a whole little segment of your study, you know, hammering in on that one issue or that one point. But if you recognize that perhaps there's a, a, a question of translation here because you're reading multiple versions, you can avoid causing confusion for your congregation. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here is we, we don't want to cause people confusion as we're teaching and we're like, this is what this is, this and this and this. And they just look at a different translation and it's not there anymore because it was the nuance. So yeah, if, if you don't understand a passage or if you're hanging your view on a nuance, that's when you want to look at other translations. And if you still are confused there, that's when you go to commentaries. That's when you look up commentaries. And I know uh, blueletterbible.org, who has not sponsored me. <laughs> Nobody sponsors me. Um, the uh, I think they're a great resource uh, for looking up different um, commentaries. And you can see the discussion and debates about those types of things there. So we're going to go to your guys' questions now. I'm taking pretty much any question you guys ask today. Um including issues related to honestly to politics. So if those questions are coming, I'm not I'm not I'm not your guru on politics, but um, I thought it might be healthy to have open discussion about some things. So here we are. Let's take question numero dos. This is from Mariano Rogers who says, how do we reach a fellow believer who's not only believing in the lies but sliding in uh, siding with them in the MSM when it comes to politics? MSM Mainstream media? Is that MSM's mainstream media? Or about any conservative viewpoint? Okay. <clears throat> um, I'm going to read this one more time and let's all understand this question. And, and, and here's my caveat. I am, again, not a political commentary commentator. I actually struggle to care about politics very much. Um, but in a sense, that might help me to have a different perspective than a lot of the people that, that are commenting right now who have a very strong agenda on one particular side and they're trying to promote and push forward a movement and I'm just not interested. <laughs> so, um, But I do care. I realize I have responsibility to at least be enough aware of these things to make a choices. So here's some of my thoughts. Um, Mariona Rogers says, how do we reach a fellow believer who's not only believing in the lies but siding with them in the MSM when it comes to politics? i.e. Trump, or about any conservative viewpoint. Um, let me say, Mariano, I don't know if I actually agree with you or not on what the lies are that are going on in the mainstream media. I don't know if I would agree with you or not on that. I do think that there are some pervasive issues for sure. But that doesn't mean that we're all in have the same sort of background knowledge there. Um, how do we reach a fellow believer who's, who's doing that? The first thing I want to say is this, is... You don't need to reach them in the sense of them becoming a believer, to, like like as if you have to stop have, having fellowship with them over these issues. You can, If you can't disagree on Donald Trump and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, then something's seriously wrong with your heart. And I'm not, I'm not targeting you, Mariano, at all. But that's true. Like this has been, uh, current, we're in a culture that is creating massive amounts of division and that division can, can trickle very quickly into our Christian fellowship where it doesn't belong. And so I think that we need to be able to fellowship with and, and, and disagree with each other without breaking each other's hearts on these issues. Um, I think that's just healthy. I think it's healthy. And I know a number of believers, and you guys do probably too, where if they were to ask you about politics, you were thinking, can I even say what I think without them dividing from me as a brother or sister in Christ? Are they really interested in my thoughts, my opinions? Are they interested in having a real conversation where we try to, you know, Iron, iron sharpen iron, 
Or are they really just testing me to see if they'll choose to hate me now or not? Yeah, that's that. If that's you, if, if when you ask people about their political views, you're really just testing them to see if you will now hate them. You're just being terribly ungodly and very worldly. If if, if that's you, if that's you, um, then that's just the reality of what's going on. Um, yeah. So when it comes to those things, the first thing I would say is we don't need to reach them in the sense of uh, changing their minds on those issues. What we need to do is prioritize Christian fellowship, commitment to Christ, the doctrines of the Christian faith up here, and views about how the media is misleading people about things down here, right? Because Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. That's an important verse for today. My kingdom's not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. So to try to establish a governmental kingdom that is Christian in, in its enforcement of some in some sense is not something Jesus is interested in us doing. So that's why we don't storm in and cause violence in the name of Christ um, on either side of the aisle. We don't do that. So I, I, I hope that helps somewhat, Mariano, answering your question. Forgive me if I'm not catching some of the nuance behind what you're asking. Uh, Lungil Zandi has a question. How can we look at Psalm 37.4 without falling into a word of faith trap? Um, how, how do I look at Psalm 37.4? Great. Um, I like looking at these verses, these passages that deal with like the word of faith stuff that goes on um, because they quote these passages and then it's, you, you're, you're going, I want to reject word of faith teaching, but I'm certainly, I want to believe what scripture says. So here we go. Um, Psalm 37, four, <clears throat> delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'm going to back up now. We're going to read a larger section. First, let's, let's see how people use it out of context. Out of context, it's used like a formula. Like if I rejoice in God, then God will give me what I want. And then what I want becomes kind of a blank check, not for carnal. I and mean, people don't usually use it for like, well, I want carnal pleasures and wickedness. But, but they often will use it for material excess, which can be a carnal pleasure. Um, for financial prosperity, like God's going to give me the desires of my heart. Like, well, I want that house. Or I want that car. And I'm going to delight in him and he's going to give me that thing. And here we're actually using the verse to, to encourage coveting to encourage covetousness and in lack of contentment, which the New Testament clearly tells us to have. Uh, no covetousness and have contentment. So that's a problem. But let's back up and read it in more in context. So Psalm 37 of David, fret not yourselves because of evildoers, nor uh, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So immediately we're talking about temporary pleasures, temporary um, exaltation of the wicked, and then the eventual context spoiler here in Psalm 37, the eventual future blessings that will come upon those who serve God, even though it's not getting them the immediate pleasures of um, the wrongdoers. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Um, or like the New King James says, feed on his faithfulness. So you're, you're just, you just do what's right. You trust yourself to God. You just do what's right. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will, and can I add eventually, <laughs> give you the desires of your heart. But here's why I, I can't use this verse to just, you know, I'm, I claim that car in Christ's name. I claim that house in Christ's name because I'm delighting in God. I'm, I'm enjoying him and he's going to give me the desires of my heart, which are him. It's him. He's the desire of my heart. He ends up being the thing that I inherit, that I receive, that I am blessed by. It's my relationship with him. It's my, uh, the, the joys that come alongside with that. That's the primary thing. And he's going to give me that. My job is to make sure I'm delighting myself, right? Because if I delight myself in God, then what is the desire of my heart? Well, 
It's the Lord. It's his glory, his goodness and relationship with him. So yeah, then you can receive that. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. This is an eventually thing because in the scenario, you're looking at the wicked, they're prospering, you're not. Trust in the Lord and don't worry about them. They're going to fade and you're going to be exalted in that, in that due time. Be still before the Lord <clears throat> and wait patiently for him. It's a delay. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. And forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Um, I, I, like New King James here says, do not worry. It only causes harm. Which is a great little Bible study right there. Um, yeah, like your your anxiety. This is a good, good word for today. You're anxious because of the prosperity of the wicked. Because the plans of the wicked are coming to pass. Don't worry about it. The coming future kingdom of God that is unstoppable is on its way. You just delight yourself in him. He will grant you those things that you're craving, that you're hoping for in him in time. Yeah, evildoers shall be cut off, but but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Just a little while, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance of peace. Like Jesus says, um, blessed are the meek. You know, this is, this is similar to that. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword. And bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. This is a zoom out view of, of future final justice and judgment from God. And it's going to come and you just delight yourself in him and eventually you'll receive all those things. Uh, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the many wicked. So you see Psalm 37 is meant to encourage the righteous who are not experiencing abundance. It's one of the encouragements is there's future abundance. Another encouragement is that if you just... Look at your life correctly from a biblical and godly and you know Christian worldview right now. You can look around and see that the little you have, that's better than the abundance that your neighbor over there has. Because what you have is in righteousness. What you have is in Christ. That this is better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. So it's an encouragement in having little, not just in getting much. So uh, prosperity preaching flips this psalm upside down. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Right, that's that future reality. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in the in evil times. In the in the days of famine, they have abundance. God being able to provide when there's uh, ultimate lack. God takes care of his own. But the wicked will perish, but the, the, uh, the enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For the blessed by the, by the way, if you've borrowed money and not paid back, that is wicked. I think that weighs into the whole idea of loan forgiveness, um, demanding loan forgiveness because you don't want to give back the money you borrowed. I think that's a, this is, forget politics, this is a biblical moral issue. Anyway, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Anyway, I could read on, Psalm 37 is kind of long and we could go on and on, but you guys get the idea. They flipped it upside down in, in word of faith teaching when they quote that verse to feed their own desires. Um, Mike and Oreo, Mick, Mick and Oreo 1113 says, can a Christian work in the CIA, NSA, and when lying and deception is part of the job, you lie to enemies, other times you lie to your family, for example, saying you work for the State Department to main, maintain cover. <clears throat> um I don't know. Okay. I don't know how much you know about inside knowledge about CIA or NSA. Um, 
I don't know if CIA or NSA lie to their family members. Is that like a thing? Are they required to like, or do they just not tell? They just say, yeah, I have, I have a, a job that's top secret. I can't talk about it. I don't really know what the policy is there. I don't, so I'm not going to comment on that, but let's talk about spying. Spying is, does involve deceit. Um, like the nature of spying is unless you're just sneaking around, right? But if in your spying, you're interacting with humans on the other side, then that there is deceit is involved in that inherently. You can't really do it without some measure of deceit. So interestingly enough, when in, uh, in, in Joshua bringing the people of Israel into the land that God promised them, they come across Jericho and they send in spies. This is, this is something that the Lord instigates. This is interesting. Um, now I'm going to share something that I think is controversial. I know it's controversial and I know a lot of people are going to maybe have a hard time swallowing it, but here's my opinion. Okay. I'm not the Bible. This is me just sharing my opinion. And just so you don't get too mad at me, look, Moxie just showed up. So there you go. This is to keep you from hating me for what I'm about to say right there. There is the kitty. Yeah. Okay. Well, you don't have to clean yourself right now though. Do you? Okay. Well, I guess so. Um, at any rate, <laughs> there's, there's Moxie. Maybe I'll show you her later when she settles herself down a bit. Um, so here's my thought, um, is that the spies entering the land, um, and other events show that not, it's not always, always wrong to mislead people. I, I know this is controversial, but when I look at Ray, and I didn't used to feel this way, it, it really is the examination of scripture that's changed my mind. When I look at Rahab and the way she um, covers for the spies and then she deceives people about where they are, and then in Hebrews where it commends her, and it doesn't just commend her for having faith, like that's true, she had faith, but specifically, in fact, let's, let's look at this because this is about spies and pr protecting, she's protecting spies, right? Let's look at what it says specifically about Rahab here. Um, Hebrews chapter uh, 12 or 11, sorry. I should know that. Um, so Hebrews 11, I'm scanning through just looking for the verse on Rahab. I can't remember exactly what verse it is. If you're like me, you actually have a terrible time remembering verse numbers. There's something about numbers that it's just, I just never remember numbers. So, um, She's, oh, and now I'm scanning it and I can't find it. This is, this is what happens in your life. Um, oh, there it is. Verse 31. By faith, Rahab, here it is. The prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay, so for one thing, she's welcoming spies. Like, if it's inherently wrong to do what they're doing, how is she welcoming them? And that's something she's rewarded for and encouraged for, right? This is, this was a great thing she did. But then, um... There's a, let me see here. Yeah. Well, I'll just hang it on that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to find some other verses that I'm just, I'm just spacing on at the moment. And I did a little study on this a while back, but basically my, my short version is this. Um, Rahab is encouraged specifically for protecting the spies. I, and God's the one who instigates the spies. If memory serves, I, I think that the, that spying can be an appropriate thing and it feels wrong because generally speaking that stuff is wrong and this is the problem is that once people realize that any sort of misleading can be justified in some sense that they immediately think oh so you're justifying all lying and all misleading and all i want to say is well you're being misleading now 
because that's not what I'm saying. And I don't know anybody who says that. I've never met anyone who says that. Um, even those who would think um, that not all deception or lying is wrong would still think that 99.99999% of it is. And so if you use this to lie to your family because you're you're on protecting them, but really you're just covering for yourself to protect your own reputation, that kind of thing, that's dishonest and not honoring Christ. But I do think that at least in principle, somebody who works for a secret service or, a, or sorry, I shouldn't say that, a CIA or spy agency, that in principle that can be appropriate. And then they still have to ask themselves if the particular work they're doing is godly or ungodly. And yes, there may come a time where somebody who's working for the government like that would have to say, I can't do this. I, I have to resign. I can't do this job. I can't do this task. I think it's wrong. And But that's true in every job. In every job, that's true. You always have moral standards. And if someone asks you to cross that, you have to say no, regardless of the consequences. So there's some thoughts on that. Uh, Talk to me TV says, um, okay. He says over the past year, my wife has gained a lot of weight, which is uh, actually, I think a lot of people have in, in, in just not being moving around a lot in the past year. Um, she wanted to have more intimacy, but lately I don't feel any, and guys, this is spoiler warning. If you have kids, this is a good time to go watch something else. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to answer this question very openly, honestly, because I feel like this, these kinds of answers help not only one person, but they help many people. But okay. I gave you, I gave you a moment there. Um, she wanted, so she's wanting to have more intimacy, but lately I don't feel any sexual desire or lust towards her is sexual deprivation toward a spouse, a sin. Um, so let me break this down into a few different individual issues. Um, is sexual deprivation towards a spouse a sin? Yes, um, you're you're you are not expressing your love and your 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 unity, your oneness together. It's wrong, and there are times. And listen, we have to have grace towards each other. There's times where one spouse will struggle, right? One part of the marriage couple will struggle with intimacy with the other part, maybe because they've gone through hard things in the past, maybe because they've they've um, done something to themselves that is messing up their own sexual mentality about things or maybe because they have bitterness in their heart towards their spouse on an issue or maybe because blah 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 uh, maybe because of, of physical changes that have caused them to not be as, des as desirable to them but that is the the problem here is that you're one of two you're one of two and you do need to be together you know what I, i'm getting the concern that people are going to think i'm speaking out of my own wisdom here um this is what scripture says it's not just me scripture suggests that well, I'll read it to you here in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And this is this is controversial. In, in Paul's day, he says this. Well, this is what people would be like, I'm mad about today. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And they'd be like, oh, this is, this is that, you know, patriarchal, you know, men rule the world kind of stuff in the Bible. And, and actually this was, this is why it was so controversial. Cause then he says, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He's not speaking about authority. Like, um, go here, do this. He's talking about sexual privileges. He's talking about in the marriage relationship, you, your body is committed to your spouse for the unity that happens in marriage. And he says it goes both ways. The, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. Her husband does. The husband doesn't have. Now, here's why it's crazy. 
this rules out things like polygamy. Well, if the wife has authority over the husband's body, how can polygamy be justified? Like 1 Corinthians 7, 4 seems to just assume that this is inappropriate. It seems to push that it is. Um, because then you have multiple wives sharing authority over that. It doesn't make any sense. Um, then he says this, and here's your answer to your question. Do not deprive one another. Right now, it seems to me, speaking man to man, that you're depriving your wife of an important part of your wedding, of your ceremony, of your of your, uh, of your marriage, of the the intimacy and the, the oneness that happens in your marriage, you're depriving her right now. And so you can do it by agreement, by agreement. So it's not just one person. I'm just resisting you, silent treatment. I don't want to be with you. But it's by agreement and it's for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again because they were dealing with this like um, anti-sex mentality in, in Corinth, uh, at least part of the church was. And Paul's trying to undo that. So scripture's telling you here in this situation, um, yes, you owe your wife. You owe your body is for her and you out of love for her should go and bless her. So that's one of the issues. Yeah, that's that's black and white to me. Yeah, you, you she wants to be with you. Go be with her. Now you're like, but I'm not feeling the desires. Okay, well, let me just say this. Um, for one thing, you're being overly selfish because you feeling a desire to do it isn't the rule in marriage, right? I, you do these things to bless her. How many times have you promised you just, I love you. I want to bless you. I want to take care of you. I want to encourage you. I want to help you. I want to, would you do, would you go and do a, a day of labor to fix something that just to bless her? Um, probably. And I think you should consider this uh, an honestly, I just love you. I'm gonna do this because I love you. But there's other issues I want to unpack here too. I realize I'm going long. I'm probably just gonna do a long stream today. Warning to the mods. We might be going long. I just feel like going long. <laughs> um, so, um, there's other issues. Okay, so yes. Uh, is sexual deprivation toward a spouse a sin? Yes, it is. I think it is. Yeah, because there's a moral imperative to be together. Second, why is it that you don't feel desire towards her? In our, I have to mention this. I'm not accusing you of anything. And please, if anybody knows this individual, don't assume this about him. I'm speaking to everybody here. If you are enjoying lusting at other women, it's going to decrease your love and your desire for your spouse. If you cut off every source, every source of lust towards others other than your, your spouse, you will find your desire for your spouse going up. That's the exclusivity, right? There, <clears throat> there's a beauty contest going on. And there's always somebody more beautiful and more attractive than your spouse. Unless your spouse is the only person in the contest, in your mind, right? It's a beauty contest with one contestant. <laughs> Right? And it's, let me give you a, a really dumb analogy. Okay, like when you are at school, you're young, and especially if your school is small, the the prettiest girl in the school is super pretty. But then when another girl comes and moves in and then she's prettier than that other pretty girl, now she's the prettiest girl and the other one's been demoted. Do you see like in, in your mind for men and women, you need your spouse to be the only boy in school, the only girl in school, the only person that you even look at because then they're the prettiest and they're the most beautiful and the most wonderful. Um, that would be one of the things I would recommend. And uh, beyond that, it would just be, you need to um, do some heart work and some mental work, but your desires aren't always required. They're nice, but they're not necessary to love in marriage. There can be a love that just says, I'm just going to do this because I love you and I do love you. And there's my advice. So moving on. Uh, Guerrilla Christianity with Pat Hobbs says, Mike, any comments for Christians? U.S. Congress convened in the name of the Hindu god Brahma. 
It's been a weird week already. Um, and all the other monotheistic gods called by other names, then they said, amen, a woman. Idolatry? Um, this is straight blasphemy. This is pagan worship of false gods. This is this is insanity from a Christian perspective and from re the real world, like in reality. What what happened with that prayer that most of you guys are aware of? Um, I could have made a video on it just to get views, but I just, I don't care. <laughs> That's not what I'm about, but... My goodness, this is just, um, yeah, it's it's horrific. It's horrific. But let me say this. We have a first century example of how Christians can respond to this kind of thing. Because in the early church, we dealt with, um, we as in Christians, I wasn't there, but, but the Christians dealt with the fact that the Roman government was even more pagan than that prayer was. The Roman government had installed officially different religious groups and religions and the worship of false gods. There was not only the oppression of Christianity at different levels in different areas at different times, but there was also things like you had to pinch incense to Caesar and proclaim that he was a god. And the church refused to do that. So, but here's the line the church found. I think that is appropriate. I think it honors Christ and it follows our biblical mandate, okay? The line is, I will honor and serve the government as much as possible. I will not cross the line of saying amen to a prayer like that. I will not <clears throat> acquiesce to that kind of ungodly wickedness. I think it's being done with this heart of, I'm trying to unify everybody. But like unity around nothing isn't really unity, right? It's just rebellion against what should be causing our unity, which is the truth of God. But, but I think that what we don't want to do as Christians and I really do think this is true, is what you don't want to do is say, okay, that's the last straw. I no longer have to listen to Congress. I no longer have to listen to my government. I can now officially rebel against anything I want because they have so much elements of ungodliness in there. That's not a biblical thing. They were dealing with a more wicked government and a more pagan institution than we are even today. And they didn't do that. And Jesus didn't want them to do that. They're crucifying the Messiah. If there's a last straw, is that not it? Yet Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword. Okay, so his kingdom's not of this world. So I think that, I, I hope that, I'm going to read this question again to make sure I got at the heart of it, I hope. Um, any comments for Christians? U.S. Congress convened in the name of Hindu God, the Hindu God Brahma. They didn't convene in the name. He, Well, I guess he, they kind of did because it was the opening prayer, right? And all other monotheistic gods called by other name and they said, amen, a woman idolatry. Yeah. Okay. I, I hope I've answered that. Um, now, if you were in the Congress, um, if I was in the Congress, I think what I probably would have done, which I'm not, <laughs> would be to um, uh, want to make, make sure to make a statement as a Christian at some point there and say, I utterly reject that prayer. I don't think that this, that, you know, Senator whatever knows how blasphemous that was. Um, and, and I, I utterly reject that. I, and it's a shame that happened or something. I mean, I would want to differentiate myself in some sense, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't be a congressman anymore. Or that would cut off a government. Next question is from Derry Draws. says, how can my relationship with God grow even more? I felt so many times that I'm not there yet. Or as if the fire I used to have is gone and something is wrong between me and God. So Derry, uh, I have talked to countless Christians. In fact, if, if we were in an audience with people, I would actually ask the audience to raise their hands so that you would know you're not alone. And I would ask them, how many of you guys feel like there's this like level of Christian faith or the level of the Christian walk that you're just, you've never been at, but you feel like some people have and you don't. And I feel like most of the room would raise their hand. And I don't think this is dependent upon them all being backslidden, ungodly Christians. Let me throw something out that maybe you haven't considered. As a Christian, I have a calling that is 
the likeness of Christ that is absolute holiness in my life, that is total selflessness, that calling is so high, I will probably always feel I fall short of it. Now, I never change the calling. I never change the calling to fit my life. Okay, I've arrived. I've arrived. Like, I've never arrived. Like, you know, Paul is talk, talks about this and he's like, I, you know, I'm not, it's not as though I've already arrived, right? But I press on. I press on. In fact, let me take us to that, that passage. Um, this um, Philippians 3.14. And I want to I share this with you. This is a great mentality for us to all have. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's, he's talking about this like ultimate, that, that high degree of Christianity you're talking about. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This is what I'm going to suggest for you is that that sense of I'm not there yet is healthy because it encourages us to press on. When it becomes unhealthy is when it becomes, I'm unqualified, right? Like, oh, I'm discouraged. Because when Paul saw that he wasn't there yet, he pushed harder. When you see you're not there yet, do you push harder or do you pull back? If you're pulling back, that's a, a deception you're experiencing. It's, it's ungodly, it's unhealthy, it's unhelpful. If it causes you to pull back instead of push forward, there's something you're thinking about wrong. Maybe you're thinking you have a qualification instead of a calling. Because a qualification is I don't I don't measure up to the quals, therefore I'm not good enough, I'm discouraged. But if it's not a qualification, if it's a calling, I'm the calling, the upward calling of Christ, then then it's something I always press on for. Because I'm qualified by Jesus and his sacrifice. I'm qualified by grace. I'm qualified by pure forgiveness and kindness and love. So when I see that I fall short, it's encouraging to press on. It's never encouragement to quit or to give up. Um, man, that's a big deal. I hope that that helped. I hope that lands for you. All right. Next question. Uh, Tromdial, the epistle of Jude cites, I guess Tromdial is the name. Okay. The epistle of Jude cites Enoch and the Testament of Moses. How do we know this letter isn't a fabrication of sorts, like from Gnostic sects and sneaked in during the council that established the new Testament? Um, I, you know what? I haven't off the top of my head. I haven't got any immediate thoughts on the canonicity of Jude. Um, yeah, let me say, um, oh gosh, it's a little bit reckless to do things without having, it's, usually I'm answering questions I've already thought these things through. Sometimes I, I'm going, wow, that's a new question. Let me just kind of like invite you into my process as I'm thinking. And you can consider me as a brother talking about an issue and not as some kind of ultimate authority on it. Um, let me say this. I don't have any doubts personally on the canonicity of Jude. And your basic question centers around the idea that... Um, that um, references in Jude to extra biblical works would make it Gnostic. Um, I don't think that's a qualification for making a book Gnostic. I think Gnostic books wouldn't be Gnostic because they reference Enoch or something else. I think that they're Gnostic because their um, their view of of like sort of the pleroma and these different um, like the demiurge and these different deities, and then you, they've got their view of the Old Testament. They think the Old Testament's wicked. Um, Jude actually encourages believing that the Old Testament and the, the, the wrath of God in the Old Testament was something that was appropriate and right. And this is something where the, the developed Gnosticism would have said that the Old Testament God was somehow wicked. And so I, that doesn't fit with Gnosticism. Um, 
Yeah. Now, as far as Jude quoting Enoch, um, that's complicated because I'm not okay. The history of Enoch is that Enoch is actually multiple different works over time. So there may be something that, that has some legitimate historicity there. And there may be other things that are just added later. I honestly don't think I'm knowledgeable enough on that to comment on it off the top of my head. So there's a couple thoughts. I, it wouldn't, I wouldn't at all question the canonicity of it. I, re, I would reject Enoch's canonicity just like the early Jews did. And the stuff I've heard online trying to encourage us to all think Enoch is canonicity stuff, it strikes me as conspiratorial, like where there's little tiny bits of evidence that are blown out of proportion. And I don't want to, I don't want to be trying to change the Bible from that. So let's move on. Um, Lacey Fikes, please says, or Lacey Fikes says, please recommend reading for marriage counseling. Christian counselors say to submissive equals codependent. Biblical counselors say if you're submissive enough, your spouse will repent about first Peter three, one, um, biblical counselors do not say that unbiblical counselors say that everything there is wrong. Okay. Lacey, everything everyone's telling you is wrong about marriage. Okay. So you said Christian counselors say, um, to, to submissive equals codependent. Okay. To, there is such a thing as too submissive, right? And that's when you yield to your spouse in rebellion to God, right? Where, where they're asking you to do things that are ungodly, um, where they're requiring more of you than what God would want you to do, that kind of thing. And you still yield. It's possible to be too submissive. It's possibly an unhealthily too submissive. That's possible, right? Um, Daniel, uh, David is an example of struggling with proper submission because he cannot properly submit to the authority, the proper authority of Saul, who's trying to kill him. He flees from him. He plots to try to get around him, but he also won't strike him down. So he's trying to find this balance, right? But if, if David was too submissive, he would have stood still so that the spear that Saul threw would kill him, right? That would be too submissive. And there is such a thing as too submissive. And people who are in serial heavy abuse situations are sometimes too submissive because they're continuing to, to stay there and enable that stuff to happen when they should be fleeing or, or calling the police or pressing charges, that kind of thing. Um, on the other side, the, you say biblical counselors say, if you're submissive enough, your spouse will repent. That's just not true. Um, and neither does scripture say that, but first Peter three, one is the verse you're referencing. So let's suppose I'm responding to a counselor who goes, wife, if you submit enough, your husband will be a godly Christian. He will be better. He'll, he'll repent. You just need to be more submissive. Um, I utterly reject this. Um, I think it's demonstrably false. It causes harm to people, but it also um, removes accountability, personal accountability. Because guess what, wife? Your husband's behavior is not your responsibility. Husband, your wife's behavior is not your responsibility. This is why in scripture, instructions about husbands are always to husbands. Instructions about wives are always to wives. Because I'm not telling the husband what his wife has to do. I'm not telling the wife what her husband has to do, right? Scripture's telling the husband what to do, the wife what to do. And it's kind of like what you tell your kids, right? We have two kids and they're fighting. Like, you just do what I say. You just do what I say. And don't worry about them, right? This is this is really how we should look at our marriage sometimes. First um, Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your dormant be external and the braiding of hair and putting on a... Uh, gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God, in God's sight is very precious for this is how the holy women of, I'm reading a larger section. I'll show you why in a second. 
hoped in God to use to used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. By the way, when Sarah called Abraham Lord, it was normal for a wife to call her husband that. In English, 3,000, 4,000 years removed from that scenario, uh, my wife calling me Lord, it doesn't even mean what Sarah meant back then. It was appropriate when she called him Lord. She was saying that you are the master of our home. You, you To use a phrase that people are going to hate, you are the pants in the family. Like that, that's not wrong, right? She still is an authority in the house. She still has authority. She still makes decisions, all those sorts of things. But she yields to the husband's leadership in the marriage relationship. And that's all it means there. We're, in our culture, if 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 my wife called me Lord, it would be weird and, and inappropriate. And I wouldn't really want her to call me that. And if a husband's like, you have to call me Lord. And be like, well, first off, you're speaking different languages. <laughs> like, it doesn't mean you don't call anybody Lord. Like when I go to work, do I call my boss Lord? No, but I want my wife to call me. It. Yeah. Anyway, um, different cultures. We got to recognize this. Um, and you are her children if you do good or do not fear anything that is frightening. So, um, there's the one word that was missed. May. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of your wives. Now, some would replace that word may with will. Oh, have I not showed you guys the scripture? Oh, what a punk. All right. They may. There it is up on your screen. They might. They could. It's possible. It's giving hope to a wife to know that in your godliness, in your unrelenting godliness, that no matter how ungodly that man is, I will serve Christ. I will be godly. I will honor him in my marriage and in the way I conduct myself, even in how I relate to him, that they may be one. Now, there is a, a story I'll tell you of a friend of mine. Uh, I haven't seen him in many years, but he was very ungodly. His wife got saved. She's living for Christ. She's honoring Christ. And he tells a story about when, when her conduct changed his life. And it was because he got home from work and he was angry. He's kind of an angry type of person. And he wanted to take it out on somebody. And so he walked in the door and he started treating her rudely, which was his routine. In the past, she would respond in kind. And then they could have a fight and he would get his aggression out. Uh, not a fist fight, but he, they would get their, he would get his aggression out on her. So he comes home and he's like, and she does not respond at all. And she's just very gracious and kind. And then he sits down and to just offer him a kindness, not because she's a slave, not because unless we shouldn't overreact to these things, to offer him a kindness as a, as a wife to her husband, she goes and she takes his boots off because of his long day of work. And it was, he's sitting there and I'm not saying why he says, I'll do this. Like I, I hear in my head, like the, um, hyper feminist overreaction to all this stuff, because the way hyperfeminism is, is they reduce re relationships to power dynamics and they uh, they remove love from the equation and servanthood is is offensive. And this is antithetical to all relationships. You, you just can't look at the world that way. Um, at any rate, she goes and she takes his shoes off and he says that his heart just broke and he just, all of his, all of his, he wanted to direct his irritation at her. It all came back at him and he realized what a punk he was, what a jerk he was. He ended up coming to Christ, ends up serving the Lord, but has been for many, many years since. There's an example of her conduct, but it's a may. It's a, it might happen. It might not happen. So counselors who are suggesting that the husband's behavior depends on the wife is, um, is ungodly. The husband's responsible for his own behavior. Wife, you may be honoring Christ and the husband may never, ever change. That's a real, that's a very real possibility. Still worth honoring Christ but his behavior is not on you any more than my wife's behavior is on me. It's not, it's on them. My interaction with them is on me. All right. Where on earth am I in our questions? 
Um, okay. Telly Kaler has a question. What happens to all of the people who lived and died before Jesus was born? How will they be judged and saved? Great question. Uh, Telly Kaler, I, um, I wonder if your name's really Kelly Taylor. I, I just can't help but immediately think that. I wonder if everybody thinks that when they see your, uh, your thing. Um, I have a whole video where I teach on this and, and I specifically worded it. What about those who never hear the gospel, right? Not just who haven't heard it yet. What about those who live and then die and they have never heard the gospel? So I've got to reference you to that video, but I will say, um, Abraham is an example um, we have some other examples in the Old Testament, um, and uh, um, uh, the leper from Syria, whose name totally escapes me, Naaman. Was it Naaman? Anyway, that uh, he's another example. And here's examples of people who put their faith in God. They did respond to to God, right? They trusted in Him, but they didn't have the full knowledge of the gospel of Christ. So I think there can't, there is room for that, but I think we have to watch out for error that we can slip into because we turn it into universalism. This is not an endorsement of false religions. Like if you're a sincere Buddhist, now you're going to be saved. I think that that is, uh, that is incorrect. I think that's fundamentally flawed. And the participate, our participation in false religions is evidence that we have rejected the revelation of God. You see that that's, that's why that doesn't work for those things, but there is, hope for those who've never heard the gospel and they would be saved through Christ and not through other things. It's kind of a complicated issue. Um, Telly Kaler, I would encourage you to watch that video. I'm sure it's probably going to be in the live chat if it hasn't been yet. Um, and I'll put it in the video link down below after this video goes live or is done going live. I'll put a link to that teaching. What about those who never hear the gospel? Yes, there's hope for them. It doesn't seem to be super often, very often at all that it actually happens. No, it doesn't endorse false religions and they are, yes, they would be saved through Jesus Christ the same way that Enoch was in the same way that Abraham was in the same way that I think it's Naaman uh, was that they were saved because they responded to the true God, put faith and trust in him. And when Christ is revealed, they'll realize that what they were believing in, in the fog well, the fog is cleared. It was this Christ who was saving you all along. There's my short answer. Um, next question uh, from Calms23. I'm an ex-Catholic still doing a daily rosary. I understand the theological problems. Can you suggest a replacement daily devotional? Um, well, let me suggest this. The rosary, because there's specific prayers with the rosary, there's, there's a couple. You understand the theological problems. I'll share it with the rest of the audience here um, so they can too. Um, some of the prayers are to Mary. And those, those are probably the most problematic ones, right? So like, you know, uh, Mary, she's called, uh, you're praying to Mary initially, that's a problem. Praying to Mary in itself is a problem um, for reasons I've discussed in my, in my videos on Catholicism. Then you've got the statements about Mary that are, that are made, like the, the types of prayers to Mary exalt her into a place that is inappropriate and that I think Mary would be offended by. So but things like our father, they're saying that our father prayers, there's nothing wrong with that. You can say our father. You can say that every day if you want. You could even say it multiple times, I guess. But we do have a second caution about praying the rosary. And it's not about using beads. That's just incidental. This isn't like the thing that you have to be worried about. Like I, I use beads to count my prayers. Okay, well, the, my, my concern with using beads to count your prayers is, is like you might be slip sliding into more and more unbiblical, extra biblical traditions that might be leading you into extra biblical beliefs. That's my fear there. The beads themselves aren't really a problem. Um, but here's the problem is that Jesus warned about prayer that we should not use vain repetition as the heathens do. And, and that's, that's my other concern with the rosary and with rote prayers. I think sometimes we've overreacted to this. 
I'm going to take you guys there. Um, Matthew chapter 6. And let's look at the teaching of Jesus on this. Oh, hold on. Software issues. Matthew 6. Consider the rosary. Consider not just the beads, but consider the attitude of praying 20 times maybe. Our Father who art in heaven. Okay? That's this prayer. It's from this passage right here. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. This implies you can pray this prayer every day. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, this is a beautiful prayer. It's from the words of Jesus. How can you go wrong? <laughs> I'm just repeating the prayer. A Literally, a G Jesus says, pray like this. And he gives us a prayer. How do I not endorse repeating this prayer? Well, I do. I think it's great. I, and I do pray this on occasion. I will pray the exact prayer. Um, I'll use it as a launch pad for other prayers. I'll pray our Father, you know, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, you are, you are good. You are holy. You are wise. You are wonderful. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I'm being pulled apart by all these different political agendas right now. I just help me see your kingdom. Help my heart to be committed to your kingdom. So I use these to topically launch my mind and my heart into other issues. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, I pray you provide for me and for my family and my loved ones. You would give my mom protection as she's uh, got COPD and I don't want to see her get, get COVID and have something bad happen to her. Like So I, it launches me into all sorts of different prayers. Okay, forgiving, I, as I forgive our debtors, Lord, I forgive this person who has sinned against me in the comment section today on YouTube, <laughs> that kind of thing. But here's the problem. He starts this whole thing by saying, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the, at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. Okay, so don't, don't, don't pray to be seen praying. Okay, well, probably you're not doing that if you're just doing this in private. Okay, so let's move on. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, here's the one that really hits home. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Why? They think that they'll be heard because of their many words. The, the natural inclination of religious man like I'm religious, we're all, everybody's religious in a sense, but um, our natural inclination, apart from true religion, apart from truly worshiping God, is to start to turn the rituals into the substance. And what I do is I, I, I think I'm going to be heard because of my many words. I'm going to be heard because of my many words. I'll repeat it over and over and over and over again, hence the beads, right? To count how many times I'm praying. When you pray the, the, the prayer, our Father in heaven, and you pray it 17 times in one sitting, I have to wonder if you think you're heard because of your many words and you're not actually praying without vanity but with substance one time through. I recommend, to be clear, I'd recommend praying it once, not many times. Maybe using this as a launch pad for other things to be praying for, that's fine. Um, but there's something to be said for... When you need direction in prayer, when you need focus in prayer, to being able to take a guide like the scriptural prayer of Jesus and then pray through it word for word, I think that's totally appropriate and fine. I wouldn't recommend doing it over and over and over again and thinking that you're heard because of your many words. That's my concern there. Um, can I suggest a replacement daily devotional that you do perhaps instead of doing the rosary? Um, I don't use daily devotionals, so this is a struggle for me. Um, what I'd recommend is read just doing a bible reading just you read a chapter two three however much from the bible and maybe you're reading with a highlighter highlight or underline or putting question marks on things you don't understand i would recommend incorporating bible reading into your daily 
um, worship and prayer is what I'd recommend. If you find a devotional that will help you do that, that's, that's great. Maybe a Bible reading plan that will help keep you on track. There's apps that do that as well. Next question is from Troy Mulberry. Does Hebrews 2.17, like them in every respect, that's a quote from Hebrews 2.17, indicate that Jesus had the same human nature as we do in every way? So, if so, can we conclude that we, like him, are born with an innocent human nature? Um, okay, I think that actually I can answer this question, um, even though I've never thought about it before, as far as this verse goes. Hebrews 2.17. Let's understand the question, the verse, and get the answer. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has also suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, so the question is, how, how far do I take the every respect? If he's like us in every respect, in every possible way, in every conceivable fashion, he's like me. Well, then that would mean he's not God. But scripture, even Hebrews, clearly teaches Jesus as God. So at least there is some sense in which Jesus is not like me, but he was made like us in the sense that he was genuinely human. He was genuinely human. He was also divine. Um, now, one of the differences, Hebrew says, is that he was like us in every way, or he was tempted like us in every way, but without sin. So we know clearly Jesus didn't ever sin. He felt temptation in some sense. I have a video on that, how Jesus was tempted in the Mark series. When we get to Mark 2, talked about how Jesus was tempted. But I don't want to push the, the sweeping nature of every respect too far because it would seem to affect the deity of Christ. So I don't want to push that too far. But I will also say this. Um, does that mean humans are born with an innocent human nature? Um, I don't think we can conclude that because I don't think, I don't, I, I don't want to comment on is our nature innocent. I want to say this. Something's wrong with our nature in that we're tempted. I'm tempted by nature. Like it's just kind of the way I'm wired. I get tempted. And then when I sin, it becomes bigger and it becomes worse and it grows and I feed it and I create the monster. Jesus was tempted. So he at least was born with temptation. He was born with some, you know, some problem that we face, which is temptation. He was tempted in every way as, as we are, except without sin. So when you say innocent, I, I mean, if you mean I'm not guilty when I'm born, I would agree with that already. My understanding of sin nature, which is not, I think the same as Augustine um, on this topic is that we're not guilty when born, but not by virtue of having a good, perfect nature, but by virtue of just not being guilty. I have a video on that. You might look it up on sin nature. Um, actually, I dealt with it when I talked about the theological problems caused by the view of infant salvation. Um, there's an interesting video for you. Um, second one in that series. Rocket Man Sean has a question. Christians are using John 16, 13 to qualify a wide variety of claims, believing the Holy Spirit led them to particular beliefs or practices. So what extent, to what extent does this apply to Christians today? John 16, 13. I do think that, and I'm slowly, honestly, I'm just slowly coming to realize this. And maybe you guys are with me here. Maybe not. We have set the bar too low for confirmation that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us so that we are, and this is, this is in charismatic movements, like, like where I, I am, we set the bar so low that we basically have false positives. We falsely think the Holy Spirit is guiding us in a particular area, issue, thought, or action. When in reality, we're just false positive. I have a strong feeling here. I had an idea I thought was great. So therefore it was the Holy Spirit. And I think that we need to raise that bar a little bit higher. 
we need to raise that higher. Uh, John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of the truth of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Um, so Jesus here in John 16 is speaking about a major change that's coming. He's going to leave them. He's going to depart. He dies and then he's going to rise and, and ascend. And then the Holy Spirit will come. He's speaking to his disciples. He talks about them bringing to remembrance the things that he said. This to me has special application to the apostles themselves. It applies to all of us in a sense, but a very special application to the apostles themselves. And so they're going to receive the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is part of the case for the inspiration of the New Testament. And he declares things that are to come. I don't know that we can say that we're going to get this to the same degree in all of our lives. Um, in the end, it's totally this false positive issue. It's like, at what point do you say, boom, now I'm being led by the Spirit versus, you know, the other thought wasn't. And if you have a very low bar, for confirming that the Holy Spirit is guiding you, then you're going to apply John 16, 13 more often. And if you have a very high bar, you're going to apply it less often. And in my experience, where do you set your bar is a, is a massive, massive issue. And one way you can test this is have a rear view mirror. And in your, um, I'm just making stuff up here as I got is Have a rear view mirror in your, in your Holy Spirit led me moments. Where when you say, God's guiding me with this, God's directing me to this. Let me give you an example, an extreme example. I knew a guy who proclaimed to the rest of us that God had directed him to marry this girl and move to Mexico. And this was totally sudden. She had just had a bad breakup after having a really a bad, unhealthy relationship. And he was like, she's available, right? And he got all excited. He says, God's telling me to marry her and move to Mexico. And within a year, he was back in California and they were divorced. Okay, I can't fix the past, but I can actually have you ask you to have a rear view mirror and to look back and say, there's me, there's me back there a year ago saying God led me this. And I, I now look at it and I go, what on earth was I thinking? I took my heart and put it in as, you know, basically there was a impersonation happening. My heart was impersonating the Holy Spirit and I will not let that happen again. And this is the rear view mirror that we need. The 2020 prophets who all proclaimed that Trump was going to win the presidency. And um, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the confirmation, which just came through. So I could finally say, put up your rear view mirror, guys, and, and, and set all of those men aside. They are not reliable sources. And sometimes you have to do this to yourself. Maybe I'm not a reliable source. And if that's been you, be encouraged that at least now you know it. You are much safer now to the body of Christ that you're aware that you had been in the past an unreliable source and now you can be real sober about things and recognize that um, sometimes you're you have false positives and you need to stop. Um, anyway, there's some thoughts on that. Miss, Miss Spazzy Jazzy says, I watched the conscience video um, and Romans 14, 23 confuses me. My conscience is so weak at the moment that I doubt just about everything. Basic things. Should I obey my anxious inklings every time? Um, okay, let's, let's talk about this. So the issue of conscience is like, and I think what you're getting at, Miss Spazzy Jazzy, does that mean that he's, he's really Spazzy Jazzy and you're identifying, that'd be like my wife saying she's Mrs. Dork because I'm a dork and she's, although she's more, become more dorky than me over the years. Um, Romans 14, 23, back to the text. Uh, it seems to me that what you're saying is, I wonder things like, um, Ooh, I just, I want a, I want a piece of chocolate. This is something, I, my, 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 my gifts on Christmas are always candy and food related, right? This is, 
him as pigs and taters. Milk chocolate with bacon-flavored bits and potato chips. It's a little weird. But maybe I'm eating this and I'm thinking, am I overindulging by eating this? If I have this piece of chocolate right here, is this... Is this is this comp is this like indulgence? Is it carnal indulgence that I'm enjoying this right now? I don't know if it is, but maybe it is. I'm scared. And so then you read Romans 14:23, and it says, um, "Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." And you're like, "But I doubt everything. I doubt everything." And so does that mean everything I'm doing is sin? What I'm going to say is this, is that first off, Romans 14, 23 wasn't actually talking about your scenario specifically. Um, if you're dealing with hyper fears and doubts where every shadow is a, is a monster, where every possible issue is an issue and you're, and you're getting triggered by Romans 14, 23, I, all I can say to you is that Paul obviously here is dealing with people who are struggling with very specific issues. Should I eat meat that has been offered to idols? right? Well, it's offered to idols, but idols are nothing. And I have faith in Christ and I thank God for this food so I can eat it. And someone else goes, I'm not participating in anything those people give, give to their idols. I don't want to touch it, right? There's a, a, a Buddhist restaurant that I like to order food from. And, and I've had questions about like, well, you know, like it's it's just like the meat offered to idols thing, right? Like there's like overtly Buddhist and Buddhist stuff inside the, the restaurant, you know? And, and I'm like, you know, how do I struggle with this? Okay, that's one issue. But what if you're dealing with everything? Everything's like, oh, I, can I drive my car in faith? Can I do this in faith? Can I do that in faith? All I can counsel is that you you have got to find a way to be reasonable. You've got to find a way to be reasonable. There's no wisdom in believing every fear you have. There's no wisdom. If you don't have a legitimate way of testing your fears, maybe you hear you have a false positive issue when it comes to fear and doubt. If you don't have a way to work through that, it will not only cripple you in your daily life, it will also cause you to push that same fear onto others. Because as you talk about, as you address these issues, you'll project them onto your kids, onto your onto your friends, onto others around you. And it's very much an unhealthy place to be. So what, what do I want to suggest is that if the answer is faith, whatever is not proceed from faith is sin, is that maybe the solution is faith, like more faith and confidence in Christ right there. That what you need here is more faith. Um, faith to say that you've overreacted to some questionable things and you can just believe that your own conscience is sometimes too sensitive and move forward in life. Um, if you're anxious about everything, that's how you know you're wrong. In Romans 14, he's not even addressing everything because everything's not even a questionable issue. Some things are. And as soon as you get into the everything category, you know you're going too far. All right. Number 15, Israel Garcia says, what are your thoughts about going to church during pandemic? Um, my thoughts in short are that I am not going to be judging everyone on what they do here. Um, here's a conscience issue. Romans 14. <laughs> I'm going to suggest that those who feel like they're going to go to church and they, and they, and they need to, and it's super important. They're going to go regardless and, and they're open to whatever the consequences are. I'm going to say, honor the Lord, do what you want to do there. I'm going to support you doing that. And those who say, I know I just can't go right now. I don't feel right about it. I have a, this list of reasons why I'm not going, whether it's my health concerns or others' health concerns, or because I believe this about this honor Christ, go ahead and do that. I think that the thing about Christian maturity is sometimes realizing that you can make a decision for yourself without making a decision for everybody else. 
And you can, as a pastor, you can make a decision for your church without making a decision for everyone's church and pointing fingers and accusing people of not serving God by doing X, Y, or Z. I am firmly decided to not cause division on this topic. And I'd encourage others to try to take that same position. Jason and Alana says in Judges 20 verse 18, why did God appear to deceive Israel and Judah as they sought his help in bringing justice on the tribe of Benjamin? They lost 40,000 people before he actually helped them. Um, let me read this again. Judges 20, 18. Why did God appear to deceive Israel and Judah? That's quite an interpretation you got there. I'm scanning the passage real quick because I'm trying to remember it. Um, I'm still scanning. It's a long passage. I'll, I'll just read it with you guys. How's that sound? And I may or may not have an answer for you because I, I don't off the top of my head remember it. I've taught through Judges before, but that was quite a while ago. All right. Um... The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall be, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And as I recall, this has to do with the killing of this man, the man's concubine. And then she was, uh, pieces of her body are sent out. It's horrific. The whole idea in the book of Judges is the end of the book is to show, and maybe this will answer your question. Nobody's the good guy. Okay. Everybody's corrupt in Israel. This is like the, the book of Judges is like part of the Old Testament case for the depravity of man, that everyone's messed up and wicked and they're all bad guys. All of Israel is just falling short of the glory of God. And the chaos that ensues as a result of this, right? Even the deliverers like Samson is like, you don't look up to the guy, right? <laughs> Not at all. Um, you know, Gideon, oh, does good and then fails. Jephthah does good and then fails. Like it's just progression towards failure. And as you approach the end of the book, like Judges 20, it's just at its worst, at its lowest point. Here we are, verse 18. The people arise and they go to Bethel to inquire of God. Um, who's going to go to fight against Benjamin first? This is groups of Israel gathered against Benjamin because the Benjamin tribe has been um, perverting justice. They allowed this woman to be abused and killed. And, and so then they're saying, like, we are bringing justice against you. You have effectively attacked us. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. This is probably the way they inquired of God is probably through the use of like a priest who inquired of the Lord. This was their, they actually had a, a form of doing this. It might have, may have involved the Urim and Thummim, some suggest. I don't know. But they inquire and the answer is, okay, Judah, Judah goes first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up to battle, uh, up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out and Gibeah, out of Gibeah, and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and went before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers and the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. So we're only getting the casualties on the, on the, on the non-Benjamite side because obviously the tribe of Benjamin is getting the better end of the battle here. Um, all these were men <clears throat> who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. There, uh, they sat there before the Lord and fasted unt that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So there's like a spiritual thing going on now. They're like, you tell us to go up, but we're not having victory. We're crying, we're fasting, we're weeping. 
and they're wicked right now. Like the whole nation's just totally messed up and this failure is bringing them to their knees. That's, there's a positive thing happening here. Um, and the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days saying, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. Okay, so the question so far is, why did God, you said, appear to deceive them? I don't think he did appear to deceive them. He told them to go up. They fought and they had a lot of casualties. He says, go up again. They have a lot of casualties again. Now they fall and they get on their knees and they fast and they pray. And then God says, okay, next time I'll give you victory. So he had them fight a battle. They didn't have victory. That's not deception. There's just something else going on there. God's bringing them to their knees. Failure brings us to our knees in ways that victory never does. Just because God tells you to do something doesn't mean you're going to have victory. He might tell you, go be a missionary and you may not have a revival. You might have a Jeremiah ministry. Still honoring to God. Preaching, 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 and people don't listen or repent. That victory is what we assume when we get the word to go. But it's not always the plan. Even though eventually God's doing it. He's doing his ultimate work. But sometimes we're just, we only think of success as one thing. And God has other things in mind. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up again against the people of Benjamin on the third day. And set themselves in array as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. This time they're pulled away from the city, away from their protection, their walls and all that. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people on the highways, uh, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at first. So they feel emboldened. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So the battle tactic is to change the battleground. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place uh, from Mara Geba, and there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that the disaster, the disaster was close upon them. So the Lord defeated Benjamin. They, they, they lose. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin and all those were those who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. So I, I think that the answer to your question is you've interpreted it wrong if you think God appeared to deceive Israel and Judah as they sought his help in bringing justice to the tribe of Benjamin. So you say they lost just they lost 40,000 before he actually helped them. That's that's accurate from the text, right? But not that he deceived them. So I hope that answers your question. Um, we often turn things into problems that aren't problems, even though the passage is, it, the whole thing's horrific because it's just showing the, the depravity of, and rebellion of Israel against God. And that's what judges is meant to show. So you're looking for heroes and people to root for. It's like, even in this story, as you read on, you don't even know who to root for. And th that's the point. They're all messed up. God's the, God's the good guy in judges, not the people. The people are those who are constantly rebellious and God is patient and God still cares for them. He's going to send them a deliverer. Even the deliverers fall short because Jesus is the ultimate one who will do that. Question number 17, Angela uh, Bedoin, B-E-A-U-D-O-I-N. What be doing over there, Angela? Anyway, if the man in the gospel of Mark was born blind, how did he even know what trees look like? This troubles me a bit. Thank you for your awesome ministry and service to the Lord. Angela, great question. And I can start, I'll try to answer, move a little more quickly. I don't know how much we're good on time. We're fine. You guys, you don't mind like a two hour video. Um, okay. So 
the blind man, he's initially, Jesus heals him kind of in two stages, right? He, he touches him once and the guy's like, I see men as trees walking around, right? So it's a, the ants are marching. It's, it's, he sees an ant moot, <laughs> burarum. And, and then, then he, you know, he, he gets the complete healing from Jesus and now he sees everything just fine. Um, how could the man know what trees look like? Well, I think that we underestimate the knowledge of blind people here. Um, blind people know lots of things, right? So they know what trees are, right? They know that trees are very tall. It's not like they're unaware. So like, you may be like, if, if, if I, if I was blind, I suddenly had sight. And then you asked me to identify, um, where is the camera in the room? I, maybe I've never seen a camera, but I probably touched one. I could, I could, I could go, oh, it's, it's this device right here. It has a lens It has, I'm aware of those things. It's easy enough for him to look around and see people like trees. So he just sees tall objects and he goes, they're like what I've imagined trees would, would, would be like. So I, I don't think that should be a problem for us at all. Uh, Lior has a question. Do we have extra biblical evidence for the earthquakes and darkness that took place in the time of the crucifixion? And the answer is, I think we do. And I'm trying to remember the details of this. Um, um, there is a there is a historical source. I think it might have been Tacitus that talks about the darkness in particular. Um, and I just the, the details escape me right now. But it's something you're welcome to Google and check out on your own. We do have a source that's extra biblical that does talk about that. And yeah, yeah. Although I'm not sure how worldwide the darkness was, or if it was just more local, or I don't know. But um, but yeah, there's something at least. Um, as far as earthquakes, I don't, I mean, there's earthquakes that don't, don't get recorded. I don't know if we would have had a record of it or not, if we should expect one. Uh, Jared's story says in the UK, COVID-19 laws are getting stricter as Christians. Are we obligated to follow these rules? Even, w uh, when we think some of them are pointless and could put a strain on our relationships? Um, yeah, probably based on your question. Okay. Your, your question is not, sh should we obey these rules period? But can we disobey? based upon thinking that's a pointless rule. Okay, no, that's not a legitimate justification for, for rebellion. It's, that rule's dumb. That's not legitimate. Um, the other one is it could put a strain on my relationships. Okay, well, that's not enough of a reason to rebel against government. It's like, well, you know, you guys are putting a strain on my relationships. But, but is there any point at which you can rebel against the government commands of restrictions with COVID? Yes, I think when it becomes to a certain degree of oppression, you have the ability to say, okay, I'm reluctantly drawing the line here. Some people are already drawing that line and they're saying, you're telling me, um, I can't, I can't go to my neighbor to, to pray for them when they're sick. I can't, um, I can't gather in my fellowship, in my, at my church. And they're drawing the line there. And again, here, I just want to say, I am not the authority to tell everybody in the church what they have to do here. And neither are you. I'm honestly not really sure how to answer all these questions. And so I'm going to honor God and honor him with, in my conscience, the best of my ability. And I'm going to respect that a lot of other believers are doing that in ways that are different than the way I would do it. And may God give us wisdom and may he help us. I'm not causing division on those topics. That's my biggest fear is the division that gets caused on there. So there, there can come a time to rebel. And I'm not entirely sure in our current scenario when to do it. I mean, it'd be easy if the church, if the government was just like going around murdering people, it's like, oh, rebel, you know, like, it's, it's, that's different. Um, this is, this is weird. It's tough. Like you're measuring like economic issues and all these things. And I just don't think, I think I'm qualified to weigh in on that for every, for other people. 
I just want to respect their conscience. April B says, hi, Pastor Mike. What are your thoughts on baptizing children? My eight-year-old has made a profession of faith that we feel is genuine. Should we wait until he's older, say 12 or 13? Um, I don't think that age numbers are the issue here. I think it's um, awareness and thoughtfulness of the person. And so your eight year olds made a profession of faith that you say you believe is genuine. Should you wait till he's older, say 12 or 13? I don't see why you should wait if you believe it's genuine. I, I, I wouldn't feel compelled to wait if you're like, no, I really believe this is a very genuine thing. He's doing this with, with knowledge, with, with awareness. I don't know why you would wait. Um, that's just my two cents. But if you choose to wait, I would honor that. I, I don't think baptism actually saves. So it's not like I think there's like an issue of him, his actual salvation at stake here. It's more about the meaning of baptism uh, that's going on there. And I do have some videos on that stuff too. You guys can look up my name in baptism if you're interested. Now, here's the thing. I had actually um, got extra questions sent to me today. And I think I'm going to run through some of these because I'm very happy to do so and having a good time with you guys. And I'm glad you guys are joining me. And I'm hoping that this will encourage your hearts in some way. There's something encouraging about just thinking biblically about things, about just processing things biblically and calmly and, and as best we can reasonably. And Hopefully this has given you some encouragement you need. I don't know what kind of content you've been consuming recently, but it's nice to... Um, here, I'm going to give you a weird analogy. In the Hobbit films, there is a moment where the the uh, the party, the Hobbit party, is traveling through the forest. And this forest ca casts a fog and creates confusion and even division amongst the, the party. And there's this one moment where to get a clear head and to get vision, you have... You have um, Bilbo who climbs up a tree and he gets up to the top of the tree and he gets out of the fog of the forest and his, the sunlight's there, his head clears. He can see the mountain in the distance. He knows the destination. He knows what way to go. And then he's like, I know. And it, all of a sudden it's all clear. I think that when we just get in the word, when we get in prayer and when we sit down and we have discussions and listen to videos that are teaching, encouraging us in our Christian faith, it's like we've raised our heads above the cloud of the fog of the moment. And we're like, ah, oh, there's the, there's the destination. I know which way to go now. So I'm hoping that this brings you guys that, that kind of encouragement to remember um, we, we don't have a message that everything's okay as Christians. We have a message that there's a kingdom that is unshakable that we're living for and that we're guaranteed. And that changes how we view the fact that everything's not okay down here. And we get perspective and vision and direction. Okay, so here we go. Um, two Messianic Jews has a question. Have you reached out to Dr. Michael Brown to discuss the Passion Translation? I believe he endorsed it. I've been loving the Passion Project, by the way. Um, I think, uh, well, here's here's the story. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown reached out to me months ago and was like, I'd love to have you on to talk about the Passion Translation onto his program. And I was like, oh man, I really want to, but, and this is my decision. I said, wait till I've done this Passion Project more more thoroughly. I want to get further down the road. I didn't even have the papers written by the scholars yet. I, I really wanted that information to be able to come and talk. So he's waiting on me to reach out to him. I have not done that yet. Um, I've just been so inundated and busy. Um, and so I, I haven't done it yet, but I intend to at some point. We'll see what happens with that. I don't want, I don't want to create any people harassing him to get me on. I don't want you guys to bug him like that. Um, I've got his number so I can, I can do that myself. Um, and I will in the future. Um, Andrew Green has a question. Are rebaptisms biblical? 
Are rebaptisms biblical? Well, I'll say this, Andrew, we don't have any examples in the Bible of people being baptized um, like multiple times in the name of Christ, where they get baptized in the name of Jesus and then later again in his name. I've, we don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Are rebaptisms biblical in that sense? Uh, no. And I, I, I want to avoid two extremes. One extreme is where we we, we sort of have a routine. Everyone gets baptized twice, right? We baptize you once when you're really little and then later on or anytime you feel like you've fallen away and you've kind of come back, we're going to do it again. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's wrong. I think it's weird. And I think it creates a, a strange thing in the culture of the church. On the other side, we could have people who go, you know, when I got baptized and I was young, I don't know what I was thinking. It's like I did it like as a ritual, but I feel like I haven't done it with the substance of knowing what it means. And I'd like to get baptized. I would, I would totally baptize that person again. And because they're saying there was a problem with them when they went through the initial ritual of baptism that they think is over now and they like to do it with all their heart. And it does something too because it alleviates some anxieties about their past. So they go, I know where I'm at. I know who I am. And so in a sense, I'm open to doing it for that reason. But I don't want to create a culture where it's just like something that's always happening. I think that's unhealthy. Um. Because it might, it might imply a insufficient view of the grace of Christ, right? Like something I have to do in order to like get forgiveness for the sins I just recently committed, that sort of thing. I think, no, um, you know, in second Corinthians, Paul writes about a man who was basically kicked out of the church and then he's repented and they're welcoming him back. That's it. You're welcoming him back. Welcome him back. He's repented. We rejoice over that. There is no necess necessity for like a second baptism after repentance from backsliding. I don't think so. Uh, Taylor Paris says, what do I do if I have to be around someone who's easily angered and I have to walk on eggshells? That's a very broad question, Taylor. So I can only probably give you very broad answers. Um, if you have to walk around someone who's easily angered and you have to walk on eggshells, um, is here's the thing. There's a way of letting of guiding your behavior to adapt to angry people around you in a way that's healthy and there's a way that's unhealthy. The healthy way is you you realize that this person is just petty and you're just not going to trigger them. I'm not going to I'm not going to feed them things that trigger them even more. I'm just not going to go down that road. The unhealthy thing is when there's like a in my opinion here totally just my opinion is when there's like a fear in my heart of that person. Right. So there's one thing I don't want to, I don't want to trigger the fool in their folly. I don't want to throw something at them that starts a fire, but I also don't want to walk around in fear of that individual, right? I'm not part of whatever they've got going on. I'm just, I'm just going to keep myself separate from it, from their anger and their overreactions. And when they respond and they get mad, I'm not going to involve myself in that whole thing, but you don't want to have a fearful thing in your heart where you're doing this out of, a, out of fear and oppression. You want to be doing it, in other words, out of wisdom, not fear. Maybe that's the dis distinction. There's wisdom that says I'm not going to trigger them. But then there's fear that says I'm scared of them. And that's not a healthy place to be. Um, and so I would encourage you to try to have the wisdom and not the fear to be very broad. All right, Logan Maddox. I'm going to do a um, uh, couple more here. Um, I recently started posting Christian YouTube videos, Logan says, and I've really enjoyed your second channel where you give advice for YouTube. Do you still plan on doing that channel in the future? Yes, I totally do. I just haven't had the time. And I kind of warned you guys on that channel. I was like, this is my second channel. This is not my main thing. I do it as time allows, as I have the time. And I have not had the time like at all, but I, I will do more content on there. 
Um, it's coming and I, I would recommend you follow other Christian YouTube or other YouTube guru people who are like giving you tips and advice on how to do YouTube well and learn from it. Um, I don't need, don't make me your only source there because I just, it was not my full-time thing. That's just a little side thing because I just want to inspire other Christians to make YouTube content. And if you're just hearing about this channel for the first time, it's YouTube Tactics with Mike Winger. That's the name of the YouTube channel. And you guys can check that out if you're interested. Um, I just want to help other Christians do well online. And we're seeing more and more of them come up. And I think with a little encouragement, we'll we'll get to see more of that. So good for you, Logan. I'm glad you're doing it. And uh, God give you wisdom. Sandrea has a question. What? Uh, why does the Holy Spirit grieve and not the Father or Jesus? Um, that's great. Okay, so here's here's where we don't want to. This is a good example where we we don't want to go too far with our with our implications of a verse. So the, the Scripture tells us, "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed." Why does it say the Holy Spirit and not the Father or the Son? Well, does the Father grieve? Yes, right. Does Jesus grieve? Yes, right. Jesus, Jerusalem. Uh, how many times I long to gather you, gather your children, and so there's a grief in Jesus's heart there. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept. And so we, we, we see this throughout scripture. The father and the son both do grieve. There is a weeping or grieving that goes on. And I'd imagine when the Holy Spirit is grieved, you could say the father is also grieved, right? There is the unity of the, whole, of, the, of the Trinity. But why then does Ephesians specifically say grieve the Holy Spirit? I'm going to take us to the passage there. Ephesians 4.30. I'll put it on your screen too. Um, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, there's a, there's a hint here. It's that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're, this Holy Spirit is, is indwelling you. Your relationship with God is in the Spirit. It's accessed through the Son, but it's in the Spirit. And so you have him in you. So your grief of the Holy Spirit, it, there's a reason why Jesus is grieved as he's weeping over, over Jerusalem. There's, there's, he's, the, he's the second person in the Trinity, but he's the one there, right there at that moment, reaching out, calling out to Jerusalem. I'm sure the Spirit was grieved too, but we, we focused on the Son at that moment because of what was going on. The focus on the grieving of the Spirit here in Ephesians is because of what is grieving the Spirit, right? And it's our bitterness, our wrath and anger, our clamor and slander. These things that are inside of us, all malice, right? It's when we're not kind and tender to one another, when we're, we're not forgiving one another as God has forgiven us. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, in our division. And there is this, the unifying thing in the church is the Holy Spirit. He's what unifies us. And when we cause division over our anger, bitterness, wrath, selfishness, pettiness, our plank eye issues, it grieves the Spirit because He is the one unifying us. So that's the reason why I think this verse specifically calls out the Holy Spirit because he's the unifying force in the church. He's, he's the one who does that. And we mess that up when we, um, when we are bitter, wrathful, angry, clamorous. Remember this, that in the midst of all the things that are going on uh, in our country right now, um, one of my concerns is that Christians remain Christian. And one of the biggest issues that I see is the plank eye thing. Um, where we are bitter, clamorous, slandering towards others because all we see are their issues and we don't see our own. If I can't first see my issues, I won't be able to deal with the other's issues. If I don't see the issues in my own views, in my own heart, in my own self, in my behavior, I will not see clearly to try to address the issues going on in our government and in our culture and in um, politics and in the news and in the media. If you speak out against those things without dealing with your own carnality first, 
you will be part of the problem as people so often like to say as about whoever they don't like, well, you're part of the problem. Um, yeah, we gotta be part of that kingdom that is holy, righteous, not just really good at pointing out the flaws of others. So thank you guys so much for joining. This has been 24, five questions, 26, I don't know how many questions we've done. And um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I will be with you guys next Friday. This is our normal Friday Q&A. I do this all the time. But also on Monday, we got the next Mark Bible study coming up. I'm teaching that live at 1 p.m. on my channel on Monday. And then Wednesday, next Wednesday, we have um, Dr. Craig Blomberg. I interviewed him on the Passion Translation. It's a long interview, really informative stuff. And that's going to be the last interview for the Passion Translation for quite a while, actually. I'm, I'm putting pause on that because I need other people to write papers, but also because I have a whole bunch of other projects I'm going to start working on. If you are new to my channel, you may want to subscribe. I just want to help you learn to think biblically about everything. And everything I do is all about doing that. I think that there's immeasurable, immeasurable value in the word of God and in understanding it and applying it into our lives. It is the way the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. It is, um, brings us comfort, the comfort of the scriptures, wisdom, Man, if, if in fact, if you're struggling with dealing with all the stuff that's going on in our government and in our culture and in the, the, the extremes, the two sides being so extreme and you're kind of wondering where the Christianity falls, read Proverbs because this is what gives you wisdom in discerning these things because I feel like on the far extreme sides of either left or right right now, we've got a lack of wisdom, an utter lack of wisdom on the most extreme sides. And that doesn't mean that we should be plop in the middle because that's just not how reality works. But but we do need wisdom. So God help us. Thank you all for being with me. And I will see you uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one or the other.